Hi, I'm Jayant Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. We are doing something different with this edition of In Focus, which will actually be split into two parts. We're discussing the Padmanabha Swami Temple in Tiruvannantapuram in Kerala, which has, of course, been in the news recently. So this is one of the most storied temples in India. It's certainly the wealthiest. And for years, it has attracted attention and curiosity because it's the classic hidden treasure story. In its vaults, the temple is said to house unimaginable riches, ornaments made of gold and other historic artifacts, many of which are actually still to be unearthed and discovered. So the recent news aspect was about the temple's managerial affairs, in which the Supreme Court concluded a nearly decade-long dispute. It arose in 2011 when the Kerala High Court took away the managerial rights of the temple from the erstwhile Travancore royal family and handed it to the Kerala government. The Supreme Court, about a week back, overturned that order and restored the right of the royal family in the management of the temple. The merits of that particular case we won't get into in this podcast, but we'll use the opportunity of that recent news to tell a fascinating story. I'm joined today by Manu S. Pillai. He is an award-winning author and historian, and his book, The Ivory Throne, Chronicles of the House of Travancore, is one of the most authoritative accounts of the fascinating history of this dynasty. So as I mentioned at the start, we'll discuss the Padmanabhaswami temple over two episodes, and we loosely split it into past origin stories and then cut to the present and what we have learnt about the temple in more recent years. Manu S. Pillai, thank you so much for making time for the Hindus in Focus podcast and for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Right. So, um, you know, let's not get into too much about the, the Supreme Court's order, but I'd kind of like to take you back a little bit. Um, you know, as a young historian, you know, when you came across, when you started writing about the Travancore uh, royal family and uh, you first came across, what were your impressions when you first came across this, uh, the Padmanabha Swami temple, the, this structure that is so storied and about which um, there were so many rumors also, I presume, at the time when you started researching? You know, in fact, you know, when I first started, which was in 2009, this case hadn't quite begun then. You know, the talk around this the national attention hadn't yet uh, reached the temple. It just happened a couple of years later. That's when the press went all crazy and they started talking about the treasure. And they spoke as though, you know, these, this hoard that was sitting under the temple was somehow uh, something new. It had just been discovered, which was not quite true. Because even older records, you do find that there are constant references to the existing of the wealth, existence of the wealth of the temple. The only difference is nobody had made any effort to measure it, count it, create some kind of an inventory, etc., and try and list out the items. So in London, for example, in the archives, I found a, a full list of the, uh, the, the various you know, articles that was in the royal uh, treasury. So the royal family's own private treasury, there is a long uh, list of you know everything down to the nose rings and bangles and things like that that they possessed but nobody had ever done anything on the temple so the attention to it came only after you know the, the supreme court case began and you know people started asking questions about the temple and its treasure 
for people in Trivandrum, I don't think it was ever uh, you know news in any way. People knew that there was a lot of wealth in the temple. Nobody knew the extent to which it was, you know, the, the, the figures involved, what kind of treasure. And you have cases, I knew, for example, that, you know, there was this prince in the 19th century, two princes actually, who one in the beginning of the 19th century and one in the middle of the 19th century in Travancore. And when they had financial crises, they actually borrowed from the temple and, you know, paid back with interest. And this is recorded in Shanguni Menon's history, in the Travancore State Manual texts like that. So, it wasn't news that way. The temple itself, yes, it was a big part of uh, the culture of the royal family, the culture of the state itself. And in Trivandrum especially, even now if you go to Trivandrum, uh, you know, Kochi in many ways, which is further north, is is the, the sort of fast-moving city in Kerala. Uh, Trivandrum, on the other hand, is where the administration has its headquarters. But in many ways, the town still has a smallish, sleepy town mood to it. And it still has the personality of a temple town. So although the you know it's the capital of the state, it it feels like a much smaller city. I remember thinking that you know after seven o'clock the streets are practically empty because you know it, people do have that small town culture uh, there, which is great for a standard of living. You know, it's a very peaceful place to stay. In. But the temple remains uh, you know culturally a very important part of the city's life. It remains a very important part of its uh, you know of its material history as well. You know, in recent years, there are groups of heritage walks that are, you know, groups of people who organize these heritage walks and, you know, they go around the fort area, etc. A lot of the architecture, a lot of what you see in Trivandrum, a lot that is beautiful, all sort of links out of the temple. So the temple is very central to the city itself. The temple is very central to the story of Travancore. Although, you know, the Travancore Rajas claim a genealogy that's at least 1,000 years it goes back at least 1,000 years. The kingdom itself did not exist with that name. It was called Vaynard earlier. This entity called Travancore is very much a modern construction of the 18th century. And in the construction of that entity, in the construction of Travancore and its royal family's self-image, its official policy, the temple was always a critical part. So any kind of investigation into the history of Travancore necessarily entailed uh, you know, a certain amount of knowledge about the temple, the kind of role the temple played for the royal family, for the government, you know, things like that. Even in, in far-off villages, you know, for the longest time, because the state was believed to have, you know, the Maharaja supposedly donated it to the to the deity, surrendered it to the deity. So, you know, in, when people got their salaries, they said, Padmanabhanda Chakangiti, which means, you know, I've got my coins from Sri Padmanabha, the, the deity. So, Padmanabha Swami's name was sort of constantly in currency, around the state. It was always reinforced by the state apparatus, by the official machinery of the government. And it was always there for a constant presence, even in the history of Travanco and its ruling family. Right. So, Manu, we'll work our way, of course, in the course of the conversation to talking about the treasure that is housed in the temple's vaults. Uh, to be fair, that's a big part of the reason why the story gets uh, the press that it does. But let's go back first and look at the origin stories of this temple. And then, of course, I would like to ask you about how Marthanda Varma then uses the symbolism of the temple to fuse religion and politics, because I think that's a really fascinating aspect. And I know that you've written a fair bit about this. And I think it all ties into both the temple's storied history, as well as the story of how these uh, treasures, um, which is, you know, that, that's a story, that's very much a story in themselves, came to be accumulated. So let's start with the origin stories first and work our way through the conversation. Sure. The temple is a very old temple to begin with. So, although the current structures you see were largely constructed in the 18th century, the temple itself existed for very many centuries before that. I believe there are references going back to the 9th century 
in Alwar poetry, for example, they do refer to this particular site. But the previous structures that were there were not particularly glamorous. So you have references before the 18th century to a much smaller structure. So the Tamil style Gopuram that you see, which the, the ruler of Travancore, Marpandavarma, very much consciously imported from his southern districts, which are now in Tamil Nadu, you know, Kanyakumari district. You have the great temple of Suchindram there, for example. So he borrowed that model and brought it to Travancore. Earlier, it had the Malayali style of, of, of temple architecture, even in, in terms of its gateway. So physically, the temple looked very different. I believe, you know, the, the temple was thatched, uh, the, the roof was thatched. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't tiles or, or any of that. So there was no grand yeah. gopuram. There was that the magnificent stone corridor that exists inside. That didn't exist. It was a much smaller Sri Koval. The idol was made of wood. These give you clues that the temple was, it was there for, for a long time, but it was not this magnificent structure that you see today. So that that distinction needs to be made. Now, although, of course, the Talapuranas, the, the sort of narrative constructed in the traditional accounts around the temple will claim a genealogy of thousands of years. You know, people will say it's 5,000 years old and this is how you calculate it. It was made right. this or that yuga and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. In a historical sense, what you find is similar temples of similar antiquity go back, say, around 1,200 years. That's the phase we're talking about. For example, the Kandiyur Shiva temple is also a very old temple uh, that we know was consecrated in 823 CE. So it's, it's about 1,200 years old. And from a field very close to the temple, they in somewhere, I think, in the early 20th century, they resurrected an old image of the Buddha. And it is believed that this was originally some kind of a Buddhist uh, a place of worship or a Buddhist uh, center or an institution of some nature which was then uh, converted into a shrine to Shiva. So that it's very likely that a lot of these places did have prehistories that are not linked to the gods we worship in them today. So in the case of the Padmanabhaswami temple, for the first, uh, you know, for the, for, to sort of get an initial sense of where it comes from, you need to look at the legends and the origin myths of the temple. So one, for example, which is not very uh, you know, widely known anymore. In the early 20th century, it had equal prominence to the other narrative that exists. There are two broad narratives. But today, one narrative dominates over the other. Even on the website, I think you have one particular narrative that is mentioned, but not the other. So the first narrative, which is today marginalized, which is today neglected, is a fairly simple story. It's about a Pulaya woman. Pulayas are basically Dalits. You know, they're an agrestic caste that eventually were enslaved and became bonded labor, you know, tied up to various uh, landlords and, 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 and feudal families. So a Pulaya woman is sort of working in her field. She hears the cry of an infant and goes and picks up the infant and she breastfeeds, breastfeeds the infant herself. Then she goes and puts the infant in the shade of a tree nearby so she can resume her work. When a huge sort of cobra shows out of, you know, comes out of nowhere, it's got five hoods or something, and it starts guarding and defending this child. That's when she realizes this child is some kind of a special divine child. She starts doing, uh, you know, puja over there. She starts worshipping the child. And the king, the local ruler, he hears about this miraculous occurrence and he gives orders for the construction of a temple there. So that is one narrative featuring an untouchable woman who finds a divine child and that's how a temple comes into existence there. It could be referring to some prehistory of the temple where it was originally a place of worship associated with people who were subsequently enslaved or sort of became, ended up at the lower rung, rungs of the uh, caste order. So it, it's possible that the temple was originally something else, just as the Kandiyu temple I mentioned may well have been a Buddhist temple earlier.
Right. The other narrative is much more Sanskritic in nature. It has Vilvamangalam Swami, a sage who's uh, doing his pujas and his, his, his penance and his you know, ascetic, uh, he's leading his ascetic life somewhere in the northern part of Kerala. In the middle of his his devotion to to in the middle of his devotions and his various rituals, etc., there's always this child who seems to appear constantly disturbing the man. And you know there are multiple retellings of this, but the one that I've heard in my own family, for example, says that this child got so annoying that after a while, you know, Vilvamangalam told him to be lost and sort of you know get away from there and don't and not to trouble him anymore. And the child simply sort of stamped its foot and and said, "Okay, fine. If you don't want me, I'm going. If you ever need me, I'll be in Anantankada." Anantankad means the forest of Ananta. And that's when the child vanishes after that. So that's when Vilvamangalam Swamiara realizes that the pesky child was not a random mortal being. It was some kind of a divine presence that had been testing him. And he then sets out southwards trying to locate this place called Anantankada. Here you again have an untouchable woman appear, but she's not no longer a very mainstream character in the story she's simply working in the field and she's got a baby with her the baby you know is either it's being recalcitrant not having its food or something on the other and Vilvamangalam Swamiyar basically hears her sort of admonish the baby and say that you know if you don't uh, have your supper or whatever I'm going to go and throw you in Anantankara so he hears the word Anantankara and he says oh you know can you point me in the direction of Anantankara so she says yeah and she shows him the way and there uh, you know there's a particular tree that he he sees there and uh, you know, the child appears again to him and the child says, yes, you know, you found me. And the child then assumes this tremendous proportion. You know, it, it's Vishnu in Anantashayana form, which is, you know, reclining on his, on his divine serpent and so on. And the, the Lord takes this huge form that, that spans multiple cities and districts and so on. And Vilvamangalam basically says, can you please reduce yourself in size so I can worship you properly? And that's right. how the uh, the deity came to be in that you know, that spot turned out to be where the current Padmanabha Swami temple is located. So the forest of Anantankara gives way to this temple. Even in this, there are glimmers that this was you know perhaps some kind of a forest land that belonged to other people. There was some holy spot in that which was taken over or you know eventually evolved into a major shrine. But the myth basically talks about you know interesting origin stories to the place as a site of worship. Later, as the centuries pass, you start seeing records of various uh, rulers of this, this region called Vainad. So again, Travancore as an entity does not exist. We can't retrospectively call any of this Travancore. There are multiple right. principalities in southern Kerala at this time. And you know you have uh, records of some people making donations, some people intervening in temple disputes. But what you find by, the, say, the, uh, the 17th century, 16th and 17th century is that the temple is under the control of a uh, council, it's called the Ettara Yogam, the council of the eight and a half. And the eight uh, refers to the eight members, which I think is seven Brahmin families, one Naya family, and apparently the half vote was the Maharaja's vote, the local ruler's vote. But the actual uh, collection of the revenues of the temple, the actual secular power in the temple, uh, control of, over its landed properties, all of that is in the hands of a group of Pillamar. Pillamar are again Naya nobles, and these Two sets, the Brahmin priesthood as well as the local feudal lords, they are the ones who really seem to be in charge of the temple. The Raja makes donations, the Raja is involved in very many ways, but the Raja is not the supreme authority. The Raja's power is very much curtailed and, and balanced by the influence ex exerted by the committee as well as these noblemen on the ground. What changes with Martha Varma is that he comes to power in the early 18th century. By this time, South Kerala, you know, different branches of his family have control over small patches of territory. And then the Raja himself in 
where Martan Rorma's family lives, that's called Vainad, which is practically just the Kanyakumari district that you see today. So really a political backwater in many in many ways. Real drama and action in Kerala is happening in Calicut, which is to the far north. It's happening in Cochin and Koilon, which is again, all of these are north of, of Vainad. Vainad itself is not a major player at this time. But Martan Rorma starts doing something new. And this is why it's interesting because Travancore would later define itself as the Hindu state of Travancore. It's a very conscious thing you start okay. finding in the in the 19th century records. It's consciously called the Hindu state of Travancore. And a census commissioner in the 18, uh, I think it was in 1881 or so, in, a, in one of the census reports, Nagamaya talks about how by Hinduism, he's basically he, he basically means Brahminism. And that's an interesting thing to note because what Martandavarma does is this Hindu state is created very much using the uh, dynamics set of, set of, you know set off by modernity by colonialism and all of this. So Martandavarma, to begin with, he there is a lot of resistance to his accession. Uh, these Ettavital Pillamar, the Temple Committee, none of them like him very much. He's clearly got personality. He threatens their interests. So there are these wonderful stories about how he had to go into hiding. He went and hid in, inside this giant tree, a hollow inside a tree, and that's how he saved his life once. On another occasion, he hid in a temple, and the priest, you know, wore his clothes and pretended he was Martandavarma and was slaughtered. So you know, assassins being sent. So there are wonderful like romantic stories that are, that that exist about Martandavarma. Either way, by 1730, he's the Raja. One of the first things he does is he destroys the uh, Pillamar and the native uh, local aristocracy. So over 40 families uh, are demolished. The, the men are killed and you know, hanged and things like that. The women are all sold into slavery because they're all taken to the coastal area and given off to the fishing communities there, which is basically to destroy the line. It's to ensure that the line never becomes a political threat to the king because although they will have children and their bloodline will continue, they've been demoted in caste. They've been, their jati has become brashta. They are now fisher folk. So he gets rid of the nobility like that. Uh, the, the, the council of Brahmins also, some of them were found to have conspired against him. Some of these were trumped up charges, but either way, he brings them also under his thumb, under his control. Some of his power is curtailed by his predecessor, the previous Raja's sons, who are, who are Nayas. And technically, they have no right to, to power under the major legal system. But in practice, they do control a large chunk of territory. And they've got mercenaries from outside, etc. He manages to murder them in, in, in cold blood as well. So, and, and what is interesting is, while the official narrative of Martha Andavarma later constructs him as a, as a hero, as somebody who achieved very many things, Simultaneously, there is uh, this in Nanjanat, which is again in, in, in Kanyakumari. They have these Villapata. Villapata are these folk songs that are sung by a particular right. group of people. And they, in fact, have a counter-narrative from that period in which Vartandavarma is this man who uses bribery. He, he murders his cousins in cold blood. You know, he's a treacherous character. So there's always a counter-narrative from day one. So he basically, first in his existing territories, he manages to centralize power in himself. What he then does is, something that was that flouts what is called Kerala Maryada. Kerala Maryada uh, basically was, was a system or it was basically the convention that even if you defeated a rival king, you did not annex his properties. You simply made the ruler a vassal. And you find this in multiple places in India. Kings tended to rule over these concentric circles of power rather than centralizing everything and creating a central bureaucracy. So you're, so long as you paid tribute, you were fine. So, but Martan Varma does something unusual. He starts annexing territory and he begins with members of his own extended family. So a place called Kottarakara, he annexes and the poor Rani has to flee. And she ends up, you know, dying in obscurity, receiving, I think, a, a two rupee pension from the Dutch for the rest of her life. And we don't know what happens to her descendants. Similarly, there's a, there's a ruler in Koilon. Again, he, he shows up there 
annexes the property and annexes everything that man had. Uh, then he goes further north, he finds uh, another distant cousin, the Raja of Kayankulam. And this man really gives him resistance for several years. It's not easy to reduce Kayankulam, but in the end, even Kayankulam is, is taken down and the man has to flee. Then, of course, he goes beyond the realm of his existing, you know, larger family network and starts conquering territories that belong to wholly different dynasties. So he conquers a place called Tekumkur, another kingdom called Vadakumkur, which are ruled by another family. And again, there's treachery involved. You know, one a prince who comes to see him on the way back is assassinated. Matandorma says it was done by the prince's brother, uses that as a pretext and, and attacks the state. Uh, another place uh, which was ruled by a Brahmin. Now, usually these Brahmin ruled places were sacrosanct. Because the ruler was Brahmin, Matandorma's own soldiers uh, wouldn't fight him. They, they thought it would be some kind of, uh, you know, anti-religious thing to do to fight a Brahmin. And what did he do? He, he simply carted in uh, Muslim and, and Christian soldiers and got them to do the deed. And he also used bribery to win over the minister and the commander of the Brahmin Raja. So this man you know, uses all kinds of tricks and all kinds of uh, you know, mechanisms in order to slowly gain power over a large chunk of territory. He finally hammers at the gate of Cochin. And the Cochin Raja is Kerala's supreme sort of, uh, you know, officially and in ritual terms, the supreme Kshatriya presence in Kerala. You know, Matandorma in the initial years is not even permitted to sit in the presence of the Kochi Raja. So this man okay. is very much turning the existing universe upside down. He's creating new rules. He's got, he's got this Dutch prisoner of war uh, after defeat. He famously defeats the Dutch at what is called the Battle of Kolachal. And he gets his Dutch prisoner of war to train his troops in the Western style and sort of create a central standing force as opposed to, you know, relying on feudal levies and feudal lords. He destroys the back of the feudal Naya system and, and their local bands and militias. Uh, he centralizes economics as well, where the state acquires a number of monopolies and starts, you know, everything is focused now on the person of the Raja. What then happens is the temple becomes important soon after this. Now, at this time, even the capital is not intervented. The capital is in Padmanabhapuram or Kalkulam, uh, which is again in Tamil Nadu. And in fact, K.M. Panikar once scathingly wrote how the victory of Travancore over these various small Malayali kingdoms was the victory of Tamilian culture over Kerala culture, because this is a man essentially showing up, up from what is now Tamil territory, and even then was predominantly Tamil in culture. And he's got these mercenary troops with him. He's got English East India Company supplying him arms. He's got this Dutch commander, and he's got a Tambram, a very shrewd Tambram called Ramayan Dalavar. And Ramayan Dalavar is the one who's really going out and you know doing all the smart, shrewd, strategic things for him. Think of it as a, as an Arendra Modi as an, and an Amit Shah together. It, it, right, it, okay. it was a two-man thing in the 18th century. And you know, all they're doing is fire and blood and war, and they're taking over all these kingdoms, flouting all the norms, and these families that ruled here are all fleeing into exile to Calicut. None of them know what how to deal with this man. So this is where the temple comes into, into a sort of position of greater prominence. Although the title Padmanabhadasa did occur here and there in the past. It was never really the uh, dynastic identity of the Travancore Rajas. That, that kind of you know, umbilical bond between them did not exist. What Martandavarma does is, having conquered so much territory, having, having even got the Kochi Raja, who was you know, this grand figure in, in whose presence he couldn't even stand, he's got even the Kochi Raja to kneel before him. Matandorma realizes that now what he needs is legitimacy. Now he needs to start speaking in a language that will make him look less like a brutal invader, as a man who flouts norms, as a man who destroys Brahmin rule territories, who, 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 who sort of you know sends off these old dynasties that have been there for centuries. So he now needs to construct a sort of legitimacy for himself. 
Right. So, so at some point he sees in the temple an opportunity to create a whole new mythology about, about his reign and the dynasty that he is building. This comes in various ways. For example, the southern parts of Kerala, the most orthodox Nambudri Brahmins, they all live in northern Kerala. The southern part of Kerala does not have the Nambudri Brahmins. There's a, a, a grade of Brahmins who are considered a little inferior to them called Potis. So he needs to woo Nambudris. And in the southern parts, Nambudris don't even do yagams or major yatnyas and things like that. That is only possible in, you know, the southernmost territory where it's possible is the Kuchi Raja's territory. So the story goes that he wanted a particular piece of, of property called Alua, which is where much later Tipu Sultan would, would penetrate as far as Alua from the north. He wanted Alua because Alua was that final area where yagams could be performed. So he wanted to become a Raja who was able to sponsor these great Nambudri ceremonies. It was again constructing legitimacy. He wanted to become a patron of that kind of Brahminical high culture. He established in the Padmanabhaswami temple these great festivals. One was the Morajapam, which was this grand, uh, every six years they would have this grand recital of Vedas and you know, mantras and all of that. And Brahmins from across Kerala were invited for this Morajapam. They were all given very grand Dakshinas and so on, which was again partly to win legitimacy from Malayali Brahmins who all lived in the northern part of the state and to get them to Trivandrum, uh, you know, year, at least once a decade or so in order to again construct the Raja's image as some kind of great patron of classical Hindu kingship, classical, you know, Brahminical religion. And he, he, he does that. But most importantly, he also needs to conciliate the people. He also needs to create, just like leaders today have public relations and they need to sort of revamp their, their public image. Martanda Varma is also very aware that he needs to revamp his public image. And here what he does is he essentially, uh, I don't want to say exploits the temple, but it could very well have had a spiritual meaning also for him. But he does uh, combine his dynastic fortunes, his uh, conquests, his very material gains and his material ambitions to the spiritual, uh, you know, sort of aura of the temple as it existed. So this is where already in, by the time he's after he's become Raja, as he's becoming wealthier, as he's becoming more powerful, he is initiating reconstruction of the Padmanabhaswami temple. So this is when the Gopuram starts coming up, the, you know, the, the stone corridors are constructed, mural paintings are being created. The temple is acquiring physically a new appearance. The king is demonstrating even physically his patronage of the temple. Associated right. with the temple, he's setting up what are called Utapuras. Utapuras are these Brahmin feeding houses where once every day Brahmins are given, uh, you know, a meal from the state. And these are, these come up in different parts of the state in order to get, uh, and, and he imports Tamil Brahmins and Tamil Brahmins start moving in a great deal to join his bureaucracy, to join the state service, etc. Because the old Naya system is now being disbanded and replaced with a bureaucracy that's being imported from Tamil Nadu. Then finally, around 1750, he does what is called the Tripadidanam. Tripadidanam is where he goes to the temple in, in Trivandrum. He places his sword uh, before the shrine and pledges all his conquests, surrenders all his, his material possessions as well as himself to the deity. So hereafter, he rules in his capacity not as a sovereign king but as Padmanabhadasa. Now it is the Padmanabhaswami temple that is the sovereign of the state. He merely is the sovereign's representative on earth. And of course, a, a member of the, of the royal family very mischievously giggled once and told me off the record, so I won't name the person, uh, that right. you know, it's, it's very convenient that Padmanabhaswami is in Yoga Nidra with eyes half shut because then his earthly regent can get away with doing what he wants. 
uh, in the name <laughs> of Padmanabha Swami. And, you know, that's essentially what happens. Because wherever in his northern territories, the, you know, Travancore is about 7,600 square miles. Only a small fraction of that was originally Mahathandavamma's ancestral property. The bulk of this was conquered territory. In these conquered territories, where you find that for, for years, even after he conquered them, the local uh, aristocracy would not stop resistance. They would still not give up. One way of sort of making, of sort of bypassing that was by constructing a new narrative around the king. So having become Padmanabhadasa, any kind of criticism of the king, any kind of criticism of the state, any objection towards the state became what was called Swami Droha, to sort of flout the, uh, the, the claims and the prerogatives of the deity or God himself. Uh, you know, anything that you did against the king was an assault on the privileges of the temple. You could resist Travancore or the creation of Travancore so long as it was, uh, it, it sort of revolved around this invader, it revolved around this man. But once the whole thing has become the property of the divine, it becomes difficult to construct a counter narrative to that. Martan Dorma therefore really wins a narrative goal. He wins the narrative battle by sort of re-creating uh, the rules of the game completely. It's no longer about battles and merely about, you know, different people fighting each other. It's now about whose side are you on? Are you going to be with God and this enterprise that is devoted to God? Or are you going to be somebody who stands up and challenges the, 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 the might and the prestige and the, and, and the divinity of God himself? It's again, you know, if one had to draw a parallel with today's world, this is exactly what strongman leaders have done throughout time and they're doing even today. These debates on, you know, are you a nationalist or are you an anti-national? All of right. it is basically narrative war. What we're seeing in Matandavama's time is an 18th century prototype of it. The world was a slower place. Communication wasn't in, in the way we do it today. But temples were extremely important for local elite culture. So even if the Naya lords in, in these conquered territories don't like Matandavama, they still, you know, sort of devout Hindus. They have their own connections to various temples. Many of them are trustees of temples. And that is a source of, of influence for them. So it's very difficult to answer uh, the narrative that Matandavama is creating with any sort of counter-narrative because it's a winning narrative. That man has really tapped into what is a winning narrative. So after this, the royal family acquires a sort of aura where they become Padmanabhadasas. And Matandavama doesn't give up. What is ironic is the Hindu state of Travancore that he creates after this. As I said, he's got Tamrams coming in. He's get up, uh, set up Brahmin feeding houses. He, he you know, sort of uh, dispossessed many Brahmins during his conquests. At one case, in the Tiruvalla temple, you have this moment where his soldiers try to harvest the paddy that belonged to the temple and the priests of the temple come out with brooms and hit all the Naya soldiers, which is, and the Nayas can't, you know, kill Brahmins. So it's extremely demeaning for the, for the soldiers to be beaten with brooms. So it's that, that is the level of acceptance Matandorma has. Now he's reversed it because he's giving free meals to Brahmins. He's got these grand festivals where even the greatest, most aristocratic Brahmins of Malabar have now incentive to come to Trivandrum and, and to sort of, uh, he creates what is the greatest patronage system for the Brahmins in all of Kerala. Earlier, the Zamarun of Calicut had similar systems. Matandorma's completely, uh, you know, exceeded that in by creating his own new Morajapam and his own Lakshadipam festival with the, with the 100,000 lamps in the, in, in the temple. All of these things are being done. And the aura of Padmanabha Swami, now in a grand looking temple, now in a temple which has this 100,000 festival, uh, lamp festival, now in a temple that patronizes Brahmins in this grand Morajapam every six years, now in a temple that has these, you know, forward and backward linkages to it. So they, some of the aura of that temple and the divinity within it also come on to the royal family and they enjoy the benefits of that. So that is how the royal family and the Padmanabha Swami temple are closely wedded together. 
Firstly, by conquest, by getting rid and by taming the committee that controlled it, by getting rid of the nobles who controlled its landed properties and challenged the king, by, by reconstructing the temple physically to make it look like an extremely unusual, magnificent structure, by even reconstructing the idol. You know, the original wooden idol was no longer glamorous enough. So 12,008 salagramas are imported from Nepal and you have this new Padmanabha Swami Vigraham that is created uh, using that. So all of this combined is how the royal family and the temple become associated with each other in a, in a way that is even the Supreme Court of India has found you can't separate the two. So it was all Mahatandavarma's genius originally as part of a political venture and then later really a battle of narratives, a quest for legitimacy and a quest for sort of ensuring his dynasty's survival in, in future times as well. And a royalist historian quite openly admitted in the 1860s that the, the, the people used to see because of all this the people saw the king of Travancore as something like the Pope. He was not just a sovereign ruler you could dispossess or, or destroy. He was really a semi-divine figure. He represented something much bigger, something of a religious nature. And that really was Martha Norma's genius. For a man who was hunted down for a long time and people sent assassination squads against him, he essentially invested in royal blood a sacred quality by which spilling royal blood was no longer an option, hurting royal blood hurting the royal family was equivalent to attacking the deity and that was a stroke of genius tune in tomorrow for part two of this podcast you're listening to in focus by the hindu and you can find our podcast on spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher google podcasts and others